The Korean War ran from June 25th of 1950 until July 27th of 1953. During that time, almost 104,000 Americans were wounded and almost 37,000 Americans were killed. I'm Thomas Carroll. Join me while we take a look back at the forgotten faces from a forgotten war. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of the Forgotten Faces podcast. Uh, our guest for today is Christopher Russell. He was the author of The Battle of Turkey Thicket, which is a true story about one U.S. Army soldier involved in the Korean War. So, Christopher, welcome. Uh, Thomas, thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Uh, if you just start off here, if you could tell me why, why the name The Battle of Turkey Thicket? Um, good point. Let's be clear about this. The people who study the history of the Korean War, they know that there was no battle called Turkey Thicket in the Korean War. I chose that title for a book because it is uh, relevant to a boy, 17 years old. He was from Washington, D.C., and he was one of the first and one of the youngest of the US soldiers to be taken from Japan to participate in the Korean War. Turkey Thicket was the name of a playground where this boy grew up. His name was Philip Thomas Hughes. He was from Washington, DC. And he lived uh, in the city there near Catholic University where um, the houses were pretty dense. It was, it was a pretty thickly settled area, but the only open space, the only playground available to the kids where, where our boy Philip Hughes grew up, that playground was called Turkey Thicket, All right? Now, Philip was an orphan, and there's a rather dramatic story about his upbringing and his travels immediately prior to his joining the army in 1949, um, he had a fair bit of turmoil growing up as, as an orphan who was adopted by a family in Washington, DC. He was adopted by an older couple who uh, wanted him to become a priest. And this was not what Philip wanted to do. So there was, there was some uh, drama there about that. He ran away from home actually, and his running away from home led to his joining the army, which led to his going to Japan, which led to his going to Korea, okay? But uh, the, the struggles that Philip Hughes had in growing up in Washington, D.C., uh, that's what I call the battle of Turkey Thicket, the battle he had with his adoptive mother in particular. And all this is, is laid out in the book. Uh, the Battle of Turkey Thicket begins by telling the story of Philip Hughes. And then really the second half of the book follows his experience in Korea uh, with the 34th Infantry Regiment. So that's, that's where the title comes from. That's, and that's, I, I love the title. I, I really do love it. It's a very interesting title. Um, because <clears throat> when I first heard about it, I was looking for the Battle of Turkey Thicket in Korea, and yeah, I didn't find anything. Yeah, the, and... <laughs> the, uh, the name Turkey Thicket goes back to colonial times. Um, 
before there was even a Washington DC, the colony of Maryland was in the 1600s cut up into little uh, proprietary pieces of land that uh, uh, were, this was all ruled by the King of England back in those days. And there were land grants given to individuals so that they could settle the area. They grew tobacco back then, and they had a bunch of colorful names to give to their, their land grants, and Turkey Thicket was one of those, and the name just stuck through the years. But that's another story, and that's another book. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole with you, Tom. <laughs> well, we'll make sure to have you back for that one, then. Yeah. We'll save that for the next one. So, uh, I mean, what, what do we really know about Philip Hughes before he joined the service? Because you said he was an orphan, so... I mean, he, yeah. he didn't have a real home life or anything. Philip Hughes was born in 1932, August 31 of 1932. This is during the Depression. We don't know who his birth parents were. Uh, he was born to a mother who either would not or could not care for him. So from birth, he was placed in an orphanage. There was something called the St. Anne's Infant Asylum in Washington, D.C. It was located in the uh, foggy bottom portion of Washington, the western portion of, the, of Washington, D.C., about five blocks from the White House. This was an old mansion that had been built originally to be the uh, British Embassy back in the early 1800s, and um, it was uh, eventually, it transitioned in, into becoming an orphanage during the Civil War. So by the time Philip came along in 1932, it, it was a pretty old place. But uh, he was one of many children there. And unfortunately, there's always orphans. It, it, it always happens. And remember that he was born during the Depression. So there were a lot of people facing hard times. And I would assume that uh, the, the Depression was a factor in his being given up, you know, we don't know the details right. exactly, but right. the first two or three years of his life were spent in an orphanage with other children. There's rows of cribs, right? And he's learning how to walk and talk and socialize with other orphans. And there's, there's nuns who care for him. There's nuns and nurses in this orphanage, but there's no one that he calls mama or mom or mother, right? So it's not until he's about two and a half or three years old that there's a couple who were, they were older, they were in their late forties, early fifties, who had moved to Washington DC from Indiana. The father was an executive for a trade association that represented coal miners, the American Coal Mining Association. And his wife uh, was a homemaker. So the parents, the, the executive was, was Thomas Hughes and his wife, Wilhelmina. They could not have children of their own. So being devoutly Catholic and having a strong sense of, of maternal longing, we'll call it, Wilhelmina decided to adopt a child. And she actually adopted two children. One of them was Philip, who was already a toddler. He was already running around the orphanage and he was already responding to the name Philip 
okay? Uh, Wilhelmina adopted him, and they also adopted a newborn infant named Frank, who was actually from Philadelphia, and they uh, brought him down on a train. A nurse put him on the train and rode from Philadelphia down to Washington, D.C. And so Thomas Hughes, his wife, Wilhelmina, and their two adopted boys, Philip, who was already a couple years old, and the infant, Frank, uh, set up a household in Washington, D.C., near Catholic University in the, the neighborhood just right next to Catholic University and very near to this area that uh, has been called Turkey Thicket for, for all these years. Um, Philip was comfortable. This is during the Depression. A lot of people are having hard times, right? But uh, they lived in this house and Philip had his own room. His little brother had his own room. And through the 1930s and 40s, um, things were pretty good for them until probably in the early 1940s or so. That's when the parents announced, hey, boys, you need to know you're adopted, right? People are going to start asking you questions. How come your parents are so old compared to the other parents? Well, it's because you're adopted. And that's not the only news that they dropped on Philip. They said, we expect both of you boys to become priests in the Catholic Church. <laughs> and uh, they, this is not news that, that sat well with the boys. They, they never really grew into this. I mean, they, they were having their future forced upon them. And this caused a lot of turmoil within the family. Um, this despite the fact that both boys were provided for. The parents were, I won't say they were rich, but they were wealthy enough to have summer homes. Uh, they, they purchased a summer cottage in, on the Delaware coast, which is about a two or three hour bus ride from Washington, D.C. The Hughes never had a car, so when they went to the beach, they rode on the bus, right? Um, and it was from that summer cottage at Rehoboth Beach in the summer of 1949 that the, the, the drama between the boys and their parents sort of came to a head. And Philip said to his little brother, you know, we should run away from home. And they did. And there's, there's a story there. And all this is recounted in the book. And I won't go into that because, after all, I'm supposed to talk to you about the Korean War, right? But... Um, in the summer of 49, they ran away from home. They went to stay with a friend in Ohio for a brief period of time until the parents kicked them out. They went further west to Chicago and they lived in the YMCA for a couple of weeks. And Philip got a job doing something. Uh, he was either washing dishes or pumping gas, we, we don't know. While his little brother Frank was uh, left to his own devices and Frank wandered around downtown Chicago during the day while Philip was pumping gas or doing whatever he did. But uh, the management of the YMCA, they, they caught on to the, the fact that these boys were runaways, right? So the authorities took them back to Washington, DC. And uh, the mother at this point was so angry and so humiliated by the fact that her boys who had been missing, she didn't know where her sons were. They had disappeared from the beach, you know, weeks earlier. 
she was so angry that when the boys were were returned she said to the authorities take them away and put them in reform school and so they were in this place called the industrial home for boys in washington dc going into late 1949 until philip who's 17 now and his little brother frank who was 15 at the age of 17, Philip knows that he can join the army. And so on Veterans Day, November 11, 1949, he enlists in the army and right away goes to basic training. And uh, there's, there's a few more wrinkles to that story, but in very short order, he comes through basic training. He's assigned to uh, the Eighth Army in Japan. So he has to travel across the country. He has to travel across the Pacific Ocean on a ship. And he uh, arrived in Japan in probably June. We don't know exactly when, in June 1950. Uh, he was there long enough to find a girlfriend because we know this because in his personal effects that came home to his family. There was a photograph of a Japanese girl. But more important to our, our story and, and more important to our discussion here tonight, um, Philip was assigned to the 34th Infantry Regiment. And when the Korean War broke out on June 25th, 1950, as you know, uh, all these Americans who were on occupation duty in Japan, they were the first personnel, U.S. Army personnel, to be shipped to Korea to help the South Koreans fight the North Korean invasion. And that's where the story really takes off. We're, 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 the book, The Battle of Turkey Thicket, at this point, we're, we're done with Philip's story, but it now becomes the story of his experience in Korea. And that's the second half of the book. So that's what we know about Philip Hughes. Wow. And I couldn't even imagine being an orphan all your life and running around like that. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know either. I mean, I, I don't walk in his shoes, but exactly. I know from what I've read that when you're raised in an orphanage, you, you don't have the same connections that you had, family connections that you'd have with a mother. You know, you, you learn to be rather self-sufficient and you learn to be, one of the consequences is you, you're more impulsive than other people. And that's kind of borne out in what we saw Philip do. I mean, one day in the summer of 1949, he says, you know what, let's run away from home. That's pretty impulsive. And yeah. that was keeping with the kind of personality that kids get when they're raised in an orphanage. So it all kind of made sense. Yeah. So now the, uh, the 34th was part of like Task Force Smith who had the very unenvious job of stemming the tide, if you will. And they, they, were, they were pretty impacted by the Army's preparedness, even uh, as far as weaponry and stuff, when they, yeah. got, when they got to Korea. Yep. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I would, I would just clarify. Um, Task Force Smith 
was the, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this, but it was the original unit of U.S. Army sent to Japan, uh, sent from Japan over to South Korea to resist the North Korean invasion. Philip was part of the 34th Infantry Regiment, which was the next line of resistance after Task Force Smith. And all of them, the, the soldiers from Task Force Smith, which were, this was a, or a component of the 21st Infantry Regiment. Uh, the other regiments involved here were the 19th Infantry Regiment and the 34th Infantry Regiment, which was where Philip was attached. All of these, these three regiments made up the 24th Inf Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. And the 24th Division uh, was one of about, I, I forget now, four or five U.S. divisions that were tasked with occupation duty in Japan. And these soldiers were very young. They were not particularly well-trained for combat. Um, they, there was a lot of equipment in Japan because uh, it was only five years after World War II. And the U.S. had built up a lot of reserves of weapons, materiel, food, vehicles, anything you could think of. They, they were building up a lot of material through 1945, anticipating that there would be an invasion of Japan, right? So the Americans had stockpiles of stuff in Guam, the Philippines, Okinawa. And then when they uh, occupied Japan, they started pulling all that stuff into Japan and, and storing it away. Uh, warehouses were, that was a big part of the, uh, of the responsibility there in Japan is just maintaining all this stuff. So when the Korean War broke out and these young soldiers were tasked with going over there, they were issued weapons that were left over from World War II. They were served by vehicles, Jeeps and trucks and artillery that was left over from World War II. Some of the stuff was actually used in battle in Okinawa, for example. And it wasn't necessarily in good repair. And there were a lot of soldiers, a lot of these kids who went to Korea at first, they were handed rifles with tags attached to them that said combat unserviceable, okay? Because wow. they just weren't repaired. They weren't prepared for this. There were kids who were sent to, to Korea wearing tennis shoes because they couldn't immediately find uh, properly fitting combat boots for them. There were kids sent to Korea who, when they were looking for rations, you got to eat three meals a day, right? Um, sometimes there weren't enough sea rations left over from World War II. So there were instances where the 8th Army was redirecting baby food from the commissaries in Japan, and they were sending that to Korea for soldiers to eat. You know, it, it was not that every soldier had to eat baby food, but it, those were episodes that happened. And I've read memoirs about that. It, the army just was not prepared for Korea. Other people have described it in the wrong, as the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it's 
for all those reasons, the lack of material, the lack of training, the lack of proper uh, officer leadership as well. There were field officers there who had really had experience as staff officers, as guys who worked in an office somewhere, and they didn't have combat experience. And they were tasked with leading these boys in combat, and the results were not always pleasant for that reason. Um, the early weeks of the Korean War were, were, were really a disaster for the uh, U.S. Army. Yeah, and now you, you as well, I do, we call them kids, because that's in essence what they were. You said, you know, 17. I'm sure there was a few 16-year-olds that forged their birth certificates even possibly. Yeah, there were the, the uh, recruiters were pretty lax in those yeah. days. Um, I read a statistic somewhere that about half of the kids who half of the soldiers who went over in the, the initial deployment of U.S. trips troops were 20 years old or younger. Let's let's put some numbers on it. The 34th Infantry Division was rounded up and sent to Korea on a ship. They left. Sasebo, Japan on July 2, 1950. They had to uh, charter a Japanese freighter to put all their, their men. 1,981 men from the 34th Infantry Division were put on the Takasagu Maru, it was the name of this old Japanese freighter that uh, took them across the straits there, the Tushima Straits, between Japan and Korea, they landed in Pusan. And uh, out of that 1,981 men in the 34th Infantry Division, maybe one in 10 were World War II veterans, but your average rifleman was, you know, half of them were a teenager and the rest of them weren't that much older, really. You know, you had the occasional sergeant who was in his 40s, right? But um, the, the youth is really what distinguishes those kids. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and, and ties in what, you know, think about the strategy for it. You know, what kind of strategy do you do, you do for, a, for a war with kids who are very untrained? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. The Americans at the time, July 25th uh, the, is when the war started. President Truman on July 27 ordered that the, that the army uh, mobilize its resources to uh, support South Korea. Um, the feeling or the thought at the time was in the military, hey, we are the US Army. We won World War II. We're big and bad, right? We'll go over there to Korea wearing our uniforms, we'll hold up the American flag. And these North Koreans, I mean, who are they? They're gonna run scared when they see us. This is, this is how the military felt. And they thought it, it would be just a couple of weeks. They called it a police action. There's reasons why they didn't call it a war. And that's another story for another podcast. But uh, the thought was just a show of force, what, what General Douglas MacArthur called an arrogant display of strength. 
would be enough to scare the North Koreans and make them turn around and go back home. Well, unfortunately for the, the boys of Task Force Smith, that was the initial line of American troops to meet the North Koreans. And for the, the young men in the 34th Infantry Regiment and the rest of the 24th Division, the North Koreans were not intimidated and they were not scared of the Americans. The North Koreans were, for the, a, a good part of them were battle hardened. These are men who had been fighting since through World War II, they'd been fighting the Japanese and so forth. And they had been well equipped by the Russians. They had Russian tanks, they had Russian weaponry. And these men were well conditioned as, as well, the North Koreans. Um, it's important to note that the countryside in, North, in Korea as a whole is pretty mountainous and hilly. And the young Americans in Japan had been pretty comfortable. They didn't have a lot of, there were some exercises and there was some training, but they didn't have a lot of physical conditioning. And so when it came to fighting battles in Korea, it meant going up and down hills and the North Koreans were far better conditioned for that than the Americans. And quite frankly, that lack of conditioning is what cost many of, many of the Americans their lives. Now, I'm, I'm talking about this. I don't think I've answered your last question, though. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I mean, now we're, uh, we're talking about Task Force Smith, too. I mean, what, what, yeah. what actually happened to them? Task Force Smith, again, this is the first unit of the American military of the U.S. Army. They were a component of the 21st infantry regiment. They were the first to encounter the North Koreans. The idea, if you look at the map of Korea, um, the North Koreans had invaded from the 38th parallel. They had already taken the capital Seoul, which is not too far south of the 34th parallel. And the North Koreans were intent on taking over the, the whole of South Korea. And for them to do that, they had to use the railroad and the road that went south. And that passage was pretty much confined to the west coast of Korea because the interior of Korea was pretty mountainous. If you're already in Seoul and you're heading south and you wanna take the rest of South Korea, you have to hug that western portion of, of South Korea uh, on the west coast on the... Um, Yellow Sea, right? Now, the Americans, under the leadership of the 24th Division Commander, uh, William Dean, General William Dean, they do what all commanders do. They looked at the map and they said, all right, uh, where's the bottleneck here? We have only but so many men, only so much equipment, and we know where the North Koreans are coming. They're gonna come through this bottleneck on the West Coast where the roads and the railroads are. So Task Force Smith was flown from Japan over to Korea. They took a train, they took the railroad to get up as close as they could uh, in this narrow area along the coast. They're between the sea and the mountains. And they uh, deployed along the road there 
along which they expected the North Koreans to be heading southward. And that is where the North Korean tanks, the, the, they were driving Russian T-34 tanks, which at the time was one of the best tanks in the world. It was uh, developed during World War II and it was very, very effective. Uh, Russia had given about 200 of these. Uh, there are some experts out there who might uh, dispute that number, but uh, about, they, they had a good number of tanks and they were the spearhead of several, a couple of divisions of North Korean troops who were headed south. And to meet those North Koreans who numbered in the thousands, I, I don't have that number in front of me, was an American force of only about 540 men. That was Task Force Smith. It was no, not much larger than a reinforced company. They had riflemen, they had a uh, little battery of howitzers. They had some uh, uh, recoilless rocket launchers for which they had very few rounds. And then everybody else just had M1 Grand rifles or uh, maybe some carbines as well. But that was not enough to stop the North Koreans. Another thing the Americans had, I, I should point this out as well, was a bazooka that was woefully undersized for the task. The, the thought was the bazooka would be an adequate weapon for combating the T-34 tank. And the Americans very quickly found out that that bazooka was too weak for the purpose. It was a 2.36 inch round. Um, if I recall the number correctly, it, it fired this puny little round, which basically just bounced off the tanks. And uh, that, was, that was the setup for Task Force Smith. The, the tanks rolled right through the American lines. Then the uh, North Korean troops, who were so many, they attacked frontally against the American positions, but they also had a lot of men who went out they spread out to the sides and they flanked and surrounded and bypassed the Americans, which at that time, uh, they, those poor kids were not well led. They were not well trained to do a fighting withdrawal. It turned into a rout pretty quickly. And uh, a lot of men were captured. A lot of Americans were captured. A lot of kids were just petrified with fear. They couldn't get out of their foxholes. Um, some of those kids were killed on the spot. There were others who were taken prisoner. And they, the North Koreans were not prepared at all for taking prisoners. And then those who were captured, there's another story, and that's worth another podcast of talking about what it was like to be a prisoner of the North Koreans. Um, for the Americans who were captured early in the Korean War, their survival rate was not good. If I recall the right statistic, about 40% of them died in captivity. Uh, but there are those lucky, I, I use the word lucky kind of loosely here. There were some lucky men who survived and they came back to tell the tale of what it was like to be a guest of the North Koreans. But um, that was Task Force Smith. And that story today is used by the army. The history has been recorded 
and it's been used for training purposes uh, for as, as young field officers in the infantry are trained, uh, they go over the history of many U.S. Army battles. But among that, among that curriculum is the, the story of Task Force Smith. And there's a, there's a mantra, no more Task Force Smiths. You know, when, when uh, U.S. military went to war in Kuwait back in 1991, it was under the leadership of uh, Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell. And they very clearly had Task Force Smith on, on their minds when they developed their strategy for how, how to push back the Iraqis from, from Kuwait. They did not send unprepared soldiers over there. They sent well-trained troops and they, they uh, accumulated enough logistics to support their efforts. And they very quickly won the war. So Task Force Smith, for all of its tragedy, uh, has really driven army doctrine, army combat doctrine to this day. Okay, now you're talking about Task Force Smith. And whenever you hear about that, you always hear about uh, Private Kenneth Shadrick, who was reported as the first casualty but we now know that he was not actually the, the first American killed in the war. Yeah, that's correct. Um, there's a lot of stuff online, and that's one of the unfortunate things about the internet. Once something is said, it gets repeated again and again, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Um, the myth about Kenneth Shadrick, Private Kenneth Shadrick was from Skin Fork, West Virginia, and he was on occupation duty in Japan and uh, he was with C Company of the 34th Infantry Regiment. Um, it would be impossible for him to be the first American killed in the Korean War because his unit, the 34th Infantry Regiment was not the first unit to face the North Koreans. It was that uh, reinforced company from the 21st Infantry Regiment that made up Task Force Smith, right? But this myth about Kenny, and, and this is not to take anything away from him. I mean, this is not his fault or anything. Um, that myth got started because of a war correspondent, Maggie Higgins, Marguerite Higgins, who was with the New York Herald Tribune, and she was a combat correspondent. And she was about 30 years old at the time in 1950. And you know, Thomas, that, that would be another great subject for a podcast is just to talk about Marguerite Smith, or I'm, I'm sorry, Marguerite Higgins is her name. Uh, Maggie Higgins and, and the war correspondence would be an interesting discussion. She put together a press dispatch, which was taken from handwritten notes that she wrote right at the front line. She was intrepid enough to go to where the bullets were flying in the air, okay? And she made observations with the Americans that she talked to, and she scribbled stuff down in her notebook. And then she had time to run back to a place where she could phone the, uh, the uh, office in Japan who would then cable the New York Herald to Tribune back in the States. And through all that process, some of the facts got messed up. 
And that's where this thing about Kenny Shadrick being the first American kill, that it, it came from the confusion of all those notes and how those notes were transferred by phone, by cable, by telex, um, back to the States. Yeah, it worked a little different then. You didn't just type it up on the internet and send it away. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were limited by their uh, by the technology of the day, for sure. So what, what would it have been like for, uh, for a teenager like Philip fighting in Korea in, in the beginning stages especially? It's pretty miserable. If you're a yeah. foot soldier, you're a rifleman, you're over there without a decent place to lay your head down at night, okay? You're fighting a war and you, you're being moved sometimes by truck, sometimes by foot as needed as you're being deployed on hills, between the hills, uh, you're crossing little creeks and rivers and you're crossing rice paddies and so forth. Um, Imagine marching all day long, wearing clothes that you have been wearing for days. And you now have to dig in for the night. You have to defend the position. Well, if first of all, you can't stay in the low ground usually because there were all these rice paddies, which are, which are always flooded, okay? This was July, so it was the growing season. And uh, all of these these uh, patties were uh, irrigated, okay? Not only were they irrigated, they were fertilized and South Korean farmers used human waste to fertilize their, their crops, okay? So <laughs> that's not where you wanted to dig a foxhole, right? So imagine you've been marching all this time, your, your feet are blistered and everything. You want to get away from the rice paddies because it smelled terrible, but there's also bugs. There's mosquitoes and, and, and whatnot. So one of the things you have to do in the military is command the high ground. It's better to be on high ground than on low ground. Another benefit from being on the high ground is you get away from a lot of the bugs and there, you know, rats were a factor as well, rats and rodents. So imagine being dead tired from marching. And now you've got to scale a hill and you've got to dig in when you get up on that hill because the enemy's coming at some point and you have to, you have an entrenching tool and it's dark now, it's nighttime and you've dug a hole and you're digging this hole. Then you finally get to lay down in this hole only to discover that the soil there is infested with ants or something like that, right? Uh, this was the, this was the, the, the hardship of the American soldier there. Now, add to this the fact that they weren't well supplied. We already talked about the, the rations, uh, you know, sea rations that were boxed up in 1944 or 1945, there were war surplus. That's what they had to eat. Water was a problem. Clean water uh, was not available. And after a while, these men had no choice but to drink water from the rice paddies, despite the fact that they were really like one big toilet. Uh, a lot of men got dysentery. Philip 
got dysentery and he lost 20 pounds from it uh, in the in the 10 weeks that he was in battle. You were having as much of a war with the elements, with the terrain of Korea, uh, which during the summer was very, very hot. There was a drought that summer. Um, then that hardship, that uh, the, the fact that there were diseases that you would pick up if you drank the water, right? If you were in combat, of course, there's the risk of being killed or, or wounded by the enemy. But there were some very surprising things that could kill you. If you're on a, in a prone position on the ground and it's dry and dusty and you're operating machine gun or you're operating a BAR or you're with a, a artillery unit, it's kicking up a lot of dust. These weapons kicked up a lot of dust. And one of the sad facts about the Korean War is a lot of these boys died from something called dust pneumonia because they were inhaling all the dust that was just kicked up as a result of firing their weapons, right? The dust pneumonia is kind of nasty. It's where the dust goes down into your lungs quicker than you can cough it up, basically. And I don't want to get gross with it, but it's just a miserable way to die. And these were, again, 17, 18-year-old boys. So that, in a nutshell, um, that kind of described what it was like to be a, an American foot wow. soldier in Korea. And that, that's just, you know, everything's against you almost. almost yeah. Everything's it, against you. And it's amazing that there are, there were veterans who survived. You know, most of the losses of the 34th Infantry Division, and let's put some numbers on it to give it perspective. And I, I said this earlier, the, when first deployed to Korea on July 2, the 34th Infantry Regiment had 1,981 men. Ten weeks later, after combat through the engagement at Pyeongtaek, at Chonan, at uh, the Battle of Taejon, and then finally the Pusan perimeter, all of these happened uh, within a span of 10 weeks. Those 1,981 men were reduced to 184 who could still, who were still standing and could re respond to roll call as of September 1st, 1950. Now, why so many men? A lot of them was, it was because of sickness, of disease and illness. A lot of them were evacuated for that reason. A lot of them were wounded and were evacuated and sent to Japan to recuperate. And then they were sent back to the war later. Um, an unfortunate number of them were killed. And then there were those who were taken prisoner. And there are MIA numbers. You know, the, the statistic is something like, there are 7,000 MIAs missing in action still from the Korean War. Um, all of those causes, all of, all of those forces uh, explain why the 34th Infantry Regiment was reduced to just 184 yeah. men after 10 weeks. And on September 1st, the 8th Army disbanded the 34th for that reason. And the survivors were distributed among the, the two other regiments in the 24th Division. But I'm getting ahead of the narrative here. 
everybody, thanks for listening to the first half of the interview with Christopher Russell. Uh, it was such a good interview, it ran into two parts, so look for the second part to be coming soon. Thank you again for everybody to listening to the Forgotten Faces podcast. You can find our show notes and our blog at ForgottenFacesPodcast.wordpress.com.